All right, hello everyone. Welcome back to Everyday Anarchism. This is a, a continuation of the series on radicalism in the English Revolution, an episode that I didn't have planned, but I noticed what time of year it was, and I was thinking about the Puritans canceling Christmas, so I wanted to have a guest to speak about that. So I've, uh, I'm welcoming Diane Perkis to the podcast. Diane, tell us, uh, tell us who you are and, and, and your work on this topic. Oh, hi, everyone. My name is Diane Perkis. I'm professor of English at Oxford University and fellow and tutor in English at Keble College. Um, I'm interested in what are often called the Christmas Wars because I came to them as a historian of the English Civil War. But it's actually that work on the English Civil War that led me to write my most recent book, English Food, A People's History, which is an attempt to construct a social history of England through changing food tastes and food ways. So I'm delighted to be here talking about mince pies and plum pudding. <laughs> Love, lovely. Uh, if only I knew how to make mince pies. Um, so let's just let's let's get right into it. Did Oliver Cromwell cancel Christmas? Because I've heard that he did. No, poor Oliver Cromwell, guilty of so many things, but mostly famous for one he didn't do. Um, any country house tour will tend to tell you that Oliver Cromwell cancelled Christmas. Actually, the guilty party was that transhistorical killjoy a parliamentary subcommittee, um, <laughs> which was uh, a group of people uh, designated by the parliamentarian side in the Civil War to produce a document called the Directory of Public Worship, which was supposed to apply to every parish in England. And it definitively said, right, that's it for Christmas, no Christmas. Why did they say that? Short story, because they were Puritans and they didn't like the idea of Christmas. Much longer story, which I'll be going into in more detail later. Christmas is not a Sunday. The only okay different day of the week is Sunday because it's specified in the Bible. Christmas is not specified as a feast day in the Bible. It's only mentioned as a historical event. So if you're a Puritan, that means Christmas is a no-no. Plus, might come as a shock to some people to notice that Christmas contains the word mass. That makes ah. it a big bad word if you are a Puritan in the 17th century. It's the mass of Christ, so it's Catholic implicitly. Um, and that was a real sore point. So one of the aims of the Directory of Public Worship was to get rid of the kind of feast day that had accumulated over centuries and centuries and hadn't really been abandoned, even by the Protestant church. And these ranged from things like May Day and um, even um, specific local saints' days. So in this, in the, the reign of Elizabeth, for example, Norfolk is still happily celebrating the Feast of St. George, and they actually have this little dragon procession that they do with a famous dragon called Old Snap. Well, that kind of thing's a no-no if you're a Puritan. It's a bit, <laughs> bit fun. You know, people might actually be enjoying themselves, dressing up, eating, drinking. That's right out. So... The Directory of Public Worship cut out all feast days, and they aimed to cut out Easter and Christmas as well, even though those are the feasts that most people would say are the most central to Christianity, because you still don't need to have a feast. Um, <laughs> to buy off social discontent, they said that there would be a regular feast for apprentices that wasn't about anything religious, so it wasn't sacrilegious, a sort of secularization of the calendar. And there would still be 
a rolling calendar of fast days because those were really important to the fishing industry. In fact, they increased the number of fast days. Of course they did. Um, but Christmas was right out. Now, obviously, this monumentally big change was only ever going to apply to the areas controlled by Parliament. It was never going to apply to the whole country because Parliament didn't control most of the country. It controlled, broadly speaking, East Anglia, Kent, um, and the bits of Gloucestershire it had managed to conquer. So in those areas from the publication of the Directory of Public Worship, which was in 1644, ministers were obliged to try to make their congregations follow this new direction. So it was all right the first year because Christmas happened on a Sunday. So there wasn't as much controversy as usual. Everyone was off the hook. But the following year, because that's how Christmas works, it's a movable feast, it was on a Monday. And that's the point that historians tend to call the Christmas Wars. Okay, so, um, and just to do a little more, uh, like, historical context before we proceed to the fun bits, or rather the not the not-so-fun bits, um, does this banning of Christmas or these Christmas wars, do they continue all through everything, the, the protectorate and, you know, the bare-bones parliament and everything? Like, is this until Charles II we have these Christmas wars? 100%. And um, Ronald Hutton... Um, who's a great historian of custom and tradition, thinks that if Oliver Cromwell had lived for another 20 years, the festive calendar would have been completely destroyed. That it was the, the only thing that saved the festive calendar was that Cromwell died before people's memories of it had ah. it, had time to expire. Um, so with the English Reformation, it's generally agreed by historian that, historians that there's a tipping point in around about 1570 when the last people who really remember the old religion as the norm die, and it becomes history. So it becomes something that individuals don't remember. The same thing would have happened with Christmas and even with Easter. But luckily, Cromwell gets the flu and dies in 1659. <laughs> and at that point, England is saved from no mince pies ever. Uh, okay, so thank 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 goodness that that the Cromwell died and Christmas Christmas a, a living memory of Christmas endured because without that living memory Christmas would have died. Oh my! Exactly right. Yeah, and because Christmas is a family tradition, it's a domestic tradition more than a civic one, so it is reliant on individual families' investments in it. And we see during the pamphleteering of the Christian the Christmas Wars just how strong individual people's investment in particular things were. Interestingly, they're not all the same things that we think of as Christmas. Um, so in that sense, you could even argue that Cromwell ultimately triumphed because <laughs> the Christmas that we're all about to celebrate is not identical to the Christmas that people were celebrating in 1620. One of the main differences is, of course, the food. Um if, if we think about typical Christmas, the, the big survivor is mince pies, um, which interestingly, I think, are almost wholly a British thing. I don't think we've successfully exported them to the colonies. Americans really dislike the idea of mince pies. Um, and, and when you get American mince pie recipes, they're sort of eviscerated of the faint trace of meat that was one, that's retained in them. Um, and yeah, they, they've survived well. Um, Christmas pudding and Christmas cake, I'm going to argue, are on their last legs. Um, but the really big difference is the advent of turkey. Mm. Um, 
Turkey dates back to obviously the Americas. It's literally an imported bird. It was known in Cromwell's day, but it wasn't widely used. And the main Christmas meal in the period when the Puritans are trying to rid themselves of Christmas is beef. And I would suggest not that many families are going to be sitting down to roast beef on the 25th of December, which once they would have been. Yeah, this is really interesting because this takes us this takes us back to the concept of revolution itself, which, mm. you know, is an idea that the the world is turned upside down mm. and then it's put back together to a, a state of permanent revolution, leaving aside the sort of Trotskyist thing would sure. would would be anarchy, would be continuous violence. So you have to have restoration. You have to have a full circle, but it's never the same. If it if it's put back together in exactly the same way, it's not a revolution. So we had almost a Christmas revolution, I'm hearing. In yeah, food. that's exactly right. Yeah. And and moreover, we've also had a process of gradualism or progressivism as the centuries have gone on, um, with a variety of social reformers putting their hands to the wheel of the obvious culprit is Charles Dickens. Right. Um, and I mean, if you think of Christmas dinner at the Cratchits, it's goose. Um, it's not turkey. In the end, Scrooge mm. goes out to buy a turkey right. for the Cratchit family. But the actual Christmas dinner they're sitting down to is a goose. Um, so that's also not quite what would have been the case in 1660 when Christmas was restored, um, let alone in 1620 before that, in part because Christmas dinner used to be a much bigger event. The analogy I would make for Christmas dinner is actually um, as it was conceived before the Civil War, is actually much closer to the kind of things like a street party that people might do oh. for a major royal event, um, or even a very big wedding, my big fat Greek Christmas um, <laughs> kind of event, where the whole village turns up and they're all fed by the Lord. That's the deal. So, of course, he's going to be um, getting a stalled ox in because it's a practical way to feed a very large number of people. Um, and the main event is also a huge fire because most people's experience of December in pre-industrial times is cold as well as hunger. So Christmas is an opportunity to get together, play games, and the games are the things that really speak to what you said a minute ago, the world turned upside down. It's absolutely standard, and this is one of Puritan's objections to it, of course, that Christmas games are about inversion, but temporary inversion. Mm. So Henry VIII rather tyrannically changes Christmas decisively by banning the custom of boy bishops. <laughs> boy bishops are um, wonderful 6th of December custom associated with the Christmas season, where a choir boy is elected bishop for a month and gets to make decisions as if he were the bishop. Henry thought that was unbearable, that it was encouraging some little squirt to think himself important, and he didn't approve of the world turned upside down aspect, so he got rid of that. But the basic idea is strongly retained in Twelfth Night, which was a much more critical part of Christmas in pre-industrial times than it is today. The faint trace it retains now in the, on the continent, you have the king cake, mm. um, the, the galette royale where you cut into it and whoever gets the bean is king of the feast. But it's a bit weakened now in comparison with what it used to be. Even in the 18th century, it was still quite big. And that's all about inversion. It's all about you give the prize, you you wangle it so the youngest child gets to be king of the feast normally. Um, and they get to give orders to their grandparents, which is part of the fun. Um, so that's the last trace there. But in earlier periods than that, before the parliamentary subcommittee got into the act, 
you would also have a Lord of Misrule at a great house who would direct deliberately disordered comic clowning festivities, rude dancers, personal jokes and jibes, the release of secrets, fart jokes. (laughs) Um, it, It was all about doing what you weren't normally allowed to do. And that was a huge part of what the festival was. Obviously, Puritans didn't like that because it's all about symbology and the body and they don't like either of those things. (laughs) Um, But it was also really powerful. It made it into, as Puritans rightly saw, something of a pagan midwinter festival of exactly the kind that it had replaced when Christianity came to Britain. Good. Oh, excellent. Yeah, we I mean, maybe we'll swing by Saturnalia and uh, we need to talk about the Puritans more, but I just have to introduce this concept that I, I've discussed a little bit on the podcast. I did a Mardi Gras episode a while mm-hmm. back, but this, uh, you know, Carnival or mm-hmm. the Carnivalesque, uh, obviously the literary historian theorist uh, Bakhtin talks about yeah. this, but it's this idea and it's a very contested idea. And I really want to stress it because um, David Graeber, the anarchist theorist who is the inspiration for this podcast and a lot of his work his recent work before he died he got very interested in the idea that these you know the lords of misrule the inversion the world turned upside down really did have the have revolutionary potential there's also Mm -hmm. of course the theory that these are anti revolutionary moments because they invert the world only to put it right they're almost like pretend revolutions that that prevent a real revolution from happening but if you could just talk a bit about this whole inversion the carnival-esque everything and then we can get to why of course the puritans would would have nothing to do with this absolutely i mean i think part of it might actually pertain to your question that for um, the director of public worship, they were trying to um, enact lasting change. They didn't actually see themselves as revolutionaries. Of course, they didn't. They saw themselves as trying to restore a status quo ante before the Stuart monarchs had messed with it. Um, They they also saw the the reformation of the church as restoring a status quo ante before the Norman conquest. Um, so they tended always to see themselves as reaching into a preferable past and retrieving something that had been lost or broken by subsequent people, rather than seeing themselves as anarchist or as forces of progressive change. So in that sense, they were very likely to side against even playing with the idea of inversion. (laughs) The idea that the Civil War was about inversion was an idea mostly deployed by royalists, in fact. It's the royalists who invented the song, The World Turned Upside Down, um, because they wanted... It's the the royalists who came up with names like the Levelers as negative names for the actual progressives in the, the movements they were opposing. Um, those weren't names that people chose for themselves. Indeed, virtually everybody didn't see themselves as wanting change, but wanting a restoration. And in a way, Christmas, or both sides in the Christmas Wars, saw themselves as restoring the true, antique, proper <laughs> form of how things should be. Um, a, a bit like people arguing about the results of Brexit, I suppose, um, and with similar sort of adherence to reason and a will to listen to the other person's point of view. 
<laughs> yeah, that's that's wonderful. Um, I uh, at this point I can remind the listeners that the word anarchist is is first used during the English Civil War, but it's directed at the levelers. It's not used by by the levelers. So, uh, and then the story goes. I don't know if this is true that as Cornwallis is surrendering at Yorktown, the uh, British band plays The World Turned Upside Down, which was not a left-wing slogan, but precisely a right-wing satire of what the left-wingers wanted. Certainly, George Washington would not have claimed that he was turning the world upside down. No, exactly. I mean, those people also saw themselves as restoring something like an ancient constitution, even an ancient idea of the republic that had been obscured by tyranny. And, And this is a very, something that they're actually deriving from the parliamentarian side in the end of civil war, not the extreme parliamentarians, not the extreme groups like the levelers or the diggers, um, but but from, if you will, the sort of middle of the road parliamentarians, the parliamentarians who wanted to make some kind of deal with the king, didn't even want regicide. So it's worth flagging up that not everybody was that radical. However, religion was the area where there was most radical consensus. Um, It actually is the case that we now know the Elizabethan church to have been much, much more Puritan than it was once believed to be. Um, That There was a a kind of quaint idea of the Elizabethan settlement as sort of quite like modern Anglicanism, really. I think that's very much been exposed as a big old fib and rather a self-serving one by recent research. Um, (laughs) Instead, the Elizabethan church was really geared to a kind of black and white Puritanism, which was briefly overturned by Charles I and his reforms. So again, this is about pushback against novelty and a desire for a return to a perceived anterior moment where everything was right, rather than the kind of carnivalesque inversion that Bakshin wants to talk about. Instead, I think what we have is much more of an idea of licensed misrule and licensed feasting as a mode of containment. I think this is what the upper classes think they are doing. Mm. And one reason we can know that is the publication of the Jacobean Book of Sports, which kind of, contra the Puritans, insisted that all the landlords had to entertain the peasants, had to make sure that they showed up at the Maypole and looked willing to enter into the popular festivities because it was felt this would be a way of managing potential social disorder. And let's remind ourselves that actual rebellions were really common in this period. There are at least 10 major rebellions in the last decade of Elizabeth's reign alone. Um, So it's not that these things were actually that successful at doing what they were supposed to do, but they were kind of what people understood them to be doing. Fun fact, I went to a Christmas-like event at the late Queen's Jubilee. I live in a village in, um, used to be Berkshire, now Oxfordshire, and the local landlord invited everyone who lives in my village to come and have a roast dinner and to celebrate the Queen's Diamond Jubilee. So we all trooped up the hill like good little peasants. Um, and, And he put on this enormous roast beef Yorkshire pudding type feast um, very traditional, um, with what I have to describe as the most elaborate portaloos I've ever seen, with <laughs> ambient music and smell, to distinguish it as sharply as possible, I assume, from anything like a rock festival. Um, and he, he's in his 90s, went round all the tables and greeted us all by name and asked which cottage we lived in. Um, clearly, this was meant to make us 
feel the social settlement included us. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I mean, that was very plainly its purpose when you saw it happen. And that's also what Christmas was. So oh, presumably lovely. the Lord's willingness, I mean, this is a big thing in modern politics even, can you take a joke? You know, <laughs> someone milkshakes you or alternatively just shouts something from a back, the back of a crowd, do you have a witty comeback or do you get sulky? I mean, it's a very reasonable test of your likely popularity, how you react to that kind of thing. Um, if you think you're above that kind of thing, it's going to turn off the crowd. There's a reason why Nigel Farage was stunning the nation by lying in a metal coffin full of snakes. It was to try and demonstrate his political worthiness by a ritual of inversion. Yeah, um, this, oh, I've got so many places to go so far afield, but this all of a sudden reminds me of, you know, I don't know the term for them. I assume you know this just as a person who lives in Britain. These these ridiculous candidates who show up dressed as Darth Vader or Oh, oh Lord Buckethead yeah. and um, the Monster <laughs> Raving Looney Party. Yeah, yeah. Uh, fringe candidates is what they're often called. But yeah, but the sort of joke candidates. Yeah, they are there um, exactly in the role of the carnival fool right. in a way to call the entire event and its solemnity and earnestness into question. And Lord Buckethead, for example... <laughs> And he actually actually had to change his name to Lord Binhead because it turned out there was someone else called Lord Buckethead who had trademarked the name. And so it just illustrates the madness, I think. He stood in um, the former Prime Minister Boris Johnson's constituency. So it was evident that he was there for a reason. He was there to say something about the ridiculousness of UK politics. Yeah. Yeah, and I think it's it's so important in this in this meritocratic age that we have entered in. It's so important to stress that, and I've talked about this a, a few times recently on the podcast. So this will be this will just be an update for everyone that in the all the previous political orders, there was this sense that along with power, prestige, command, respect. To be there, there was also a reciprocal relationship. It wasn't like, oh, well, you were the CEO, so that means you can do whatever you want to to the workers. It was, you're the Lord, so they owe you something, but you owe them something as yeah. well. And Christmas 100%. is part of this yeah. reciprocal relationship, yeah. it sounds like. Yeah. I mean, it was understood, it wasn't like Victorian noblesse oblige, that there were definite parameters to the nature of the relationship. So, I mean, a big part of the deal, and it still is, and most of the villagers traipsing up the hill were paying rent. Um, a big part of the deal is that you do your part by, in a way, providing the Lord with food through your labor. And in response, the Lord gives you a massive blowout feast maybe four times a year. Um, and it's, it's therefore about a social order and structure in which both sides have responsibilities mm -hmm. and obligations, which if either side neglects, the other side will take umbrage. Right. Um, and it's well understood because increasingly the scene for nobles and even greater gentry is changing because of the influx of new world money. They have much more spending power than they had in 1500. Um, they have many more lands than they had because of the redistribution of land from the dissolution of the monasteries. I mean, the, the civil war is basically created 
um, the parliamentarian side is made up of men who benefited from the dissolution of the mm. monasteries, their grandsons. And, and it unbalances the class structure because they now have so much money, actual cash wealth, that they can, and so much more land that they can actually start to Welsh on their obligations to their tenants. And this they then do um, so that the king then has to kind of try and drive them back to their lands by mm. shortening the London season to make them enact those hospitalities. I wouldn't say it's a cause of the war, but it's part of a factor in the Christmas wars and why they bring out so much tension. I mean, to us, and Hilary Mantel's Wolf Hall novels are a very good instance of this, actually Protestants are really attractive because they're individual. They're all about individuality. Mm-hmm. They're all about standing on your two feet before God without an intervening institution as they create the modern world in that sense. And so, right. of course, we like them. But actually, the older world that's by no means dead in this period is actually all about intersectionality and about the fact that your identity is a social one and a reciprocal one and an engaged one, not something that you're working on in solitude. Yeah, this is you. You perfectly segued to my next uh, comment because you know the the Massachusetts colonies, the Puritan colonies in New England, are the most literate colonies. Uh, sorry, not not colonies. Are the most literate societies in the history of the world. And the idea is that there is nothing between you and God, except, of course, we have to make this one thing. There's this thing called the Bible. You're not allowed to just go into nature and find God. That would be quite, mm-hmm. uh, that would be quite uh, pagan. Mm-hmm. Um, and something like Christmas, not to mention the mass that is contained mm-hmm. in Christmas, is an additional thing. It is, yeah. and everything, bishops are an additional thing between you and God. The Lord is an additional thing between Stained you glass and God. is an additional thing between the light and, and you. Yes. Um, paintings are unnecessary because God can work directly on your mind. Um, but from our, um, from our point of view, there's something really attractive about that rhetorically. There's a wonderful moment where as part of um, the reforms of worship under Edward VI, Parliament declares all days are alike God's creatures, uh-huh, which yes. is an absolutely lovely saying. I feel sure that Cotton Mather would have liked it too. Yes, absolutely. Um, and so Christmas isn't therefore special. Christmas is part of the glory of every day under the eye of God. Of course, actually, if you're Puritan, I'm just going to say this. Just think about what happened in those Massachusetts colonies, cough, cough, endless witch trials, cough, cough, Native American massacres. You're actually constantly beset by fear of what might be coming from inside you um, because you, you lose perspective on where you stand in relation to anything with that perspective that the Christmas festivities were presumably designed to provide. Yeah, no, I I think it sounds like you and I are in complete uh, alignment on this. I mean, it, it really is quite Freudian. When you remove everything except for the soul, you find out what is inside the soul. And uh, they they knew what was in the soul in previous societies, and they had strategies and techniques and festivals and inversions and responsibilities to deal with it. And you, I mean, in some ways, when I had John Morrill... Uh, on the show and I was, you know, trotting out my idea that sort of this is, I mean, not my idea, but the idea that this is the first modern revolution. And John said, well, you know, you really can't discount the fact that the enlightenment hadn't happened yet, but yeah. from where I'm sitting as a, as someone who was raised Calvinist for one thing, but as, as a historian of, 
American ideas, including Calvinism, it seems to me this is the this is yeah. the Enlightenment. Totally. What do they I think totally they agree. were doing but Enlightenment? John Morrill and I disagree on so many things, and clearly this is another one. But I am I'm strongly of the opinion that what we lose at the moment when the Directory of Public Worship appears is an unselfconscious and in a way importantly unthought out allegiance to a world of intersectionality, customs, mm. bodiliness, physical immersion in the world we inhabit. Um, and, and bringing it back consciously, which is what the Restoration does, it's what people who consciously convert to Catholicism or con consciously make themselves into modern pagans seek to do. It, it's not the same, because once it's conscious, it's actually part of that Enlightenment world where I am choosing who I want to be, I am choosing how I want to be here. Yeah. Oh, that's that's wonderful. Um, all right. So, uh, I mean, there's there's plenty more to say. We certainly don't need to be anywhere near towards wrapping up. But I guess I'm one thing I'm curious about is tell me how the Christmas wars end. I mean, is it just like the next day after the restoration, we're bringing Christmas back? How does this how does this play out? Yeah, it goes on for some centuries, actually. And and I should probably mention that the Christmas Wars have a body count. We've been talking about them quite lightly. Right. But there are actual brawls and fights that actually lead to some deaths, mostly over whether shops stay open, which ah. they do if you're Puritan, or whether they're closed, which they do if you're anti-Puritan. Um, and, and people forcibly open shops that have been closed or forcibly closed shops that have been open. And there's, yeah, there's actual violence and people actually die. Um, so it, it's so important to people, I guess, like with some modern religious taboos, that they are willing to kill for it. Mm. Um, so we, we probably shouldn't be too light in tone about it. Um, my other great thought um, in, in response to your question is that, yeah, um, Christmas is then firmly reinstated at the Restoration in terms of public worship. So churches will then go on doing it. But obviously there are still lots of Puritan communities and lots of Puritan-dominated churches. So it remains a local sort of simmering point, really on and on and on, up till and perhaps including the Dickens era that reshapes Christmas again almost completely. The Victorians, with a sort of combined force of Dickens, Prince Albert, um, and a lot of royal engagement, end up giving us pretty much what we think of as a traditional Christmas um, and, and it's not really a traditional Christmas. It's a reinvention. They right. invent all the carols. Carols are nearly all Victorian, if you look at them. Um, a medieval carol is a dance, not at all insignificantly, not something you say in your head to God, um, yeah. and, and not something sung by a very high treble um, in the middle of a lonely church nave, um, but something much more corporate and, and bodily. Um, we lose all that, and it's gone, and it's gone forever, actually. Um, because the incessant local pressure from local Puritans means that to restore Christmas again in the 1840s, they have to start from scratch and pick and choose and, and then announce that what they're doing is traditional, but skate round all that awkward kind of war-based war stuff that went before and say, no, this is really novel. This is uh, this is our traditional Christmas that we've been neglecting for no reason. Here we are bringing it back. And it's all about charity to the poor. But that now is not something mm. landlords do. Mm. And as far as I can see, Scrooge is not Bob Cratchit's landlord. He's his boss. 
Mm-hmm. And though that sounds trivial and it preserves something of the relationship, it's not actually the same. It's urban, not rural. It's not about Bob Cratchit providing Scrooge with material stuff, but Bob Cratchit as a clerk providing Scrooge with more abstract things. So it's an enlightenment revision of this um, much, much more uh, bodily and carnivalesque notion of Christmas. Um, so it, it, that's the resolution that we end up with, the final British compromise. And I think we're still kind of clinging to the remnants of that now. Um, and it has surprising, there's still surprising survivals. Um, I kind of think that there's an interesting thing with folk horror Christmas, that we're getting back to much more of a scary idea of Christmas with Father Christmas now known to be a Christmas demon um, <laughs> and Twelfth Night known to be a scary time. I think these are healthy developments. Yeah. Um, so it is intriguing. First of all, you can make the point um, that Cal- Calvinism, Puritanism, and uh, and commerce go together so well. So the fact that the, yeah. that the shops stay open on Christmas seems to me to be not not a, not a trivial thing, but actually a very very important thing. Buying and selling does not stop for anything in Puritan Christmas. Absolutely right. And they're notably open in Dickens's Christmas Carol. Uh-huh. Um, my, my children and I are both huge fans of the immortal Muppet Christmas Carol, the greatest Christmas <laughs> film ever made. Oh, without, with, without a doubt, the greatest version of the Christmas Carol, one of the greatest Christmas movies ever made, and of course, a regular in the Colbertson family household. Thank you so much for bringing this up. I am overjoyed to hear that you were a fellow adherent, um, but it, it led my children to great surprise that the shop that sells the turkey is open on Christmas ah, Day, yes. um, because virtually um, Christmas Day is one of the few days when shops now close. They don't close for long, and they don't all close. You, you know, if you <laughs> wanted to buy a turkey, you probably still could, um, but it, it's more of a tradition now. Um, and the underlying assumption is that the staff need to have Christmas off. I once worked in Australia in a soft drink factory over Christmas. And because, of course, Australia, Christmas is summertime. It's a hot Christmas. Soft drink factories work <laughs> overtime. And you get offered what's called four-ball time if you work Christmas Day. That is, you get four times your normal wage. Um, so it's it's also a massive bonanza in a sense. So a lot of people do it because it pays for their Christmas, though it means they have to postpone it. So that kind of plays into what you said. But Christmas normally is a sacrosanct moment when you absolutely can't neglect Auntie Beryl, even if for the other 364 days a year, everyone pretends she doesn't exist. Well, that I mean, that sounds like a bit of a restoration of that idea of what we owe one another and the exactly. and the reciprocity. Exactly. That's exactly right. And even though it's often quite sketchy and and the bonanza of commerce in the newspapers wanting to sell us everything possible that we don't want um, tends to neglect the anti-barrel side of it. I totally agree. I think that what's retained in Christmas is actually this outward-looking sense of just saying Merry Christmas to people you pass in the street, tiny though that sounds. Yeah, I... One one of the things that comes up over and over again as I spend time in these uh, in, in in the left wing circles that I travel again now is a general antipathy to, you know, Amer- America itself, which you know has good reasons, what with its connection to uh, imperialism, uh, objections to Christianity, and therefore objection to something like Christmas, which of course can be read as the most mercantilized American and imperialist holiday possible. Yeah. I am very invested. Sorry, in, in, in keeping a spirit 
of yeah. Christmas that is that is not that. I don't think we have yeah. to get rid of Christmas just because of all of these things. No, totally not. I- indeed, Christmas used to be and should still be a feast where you renew contact with the people around you, whether mm-hmm. you see those people as the people on your street, the people in your village, the people in your family, including Auntie Beryl, older people, it's that moment. And and that moment isn't necessarily commercial. Indeed, it probably shouldn't be commercial. Mm-hmm. Auntie Beryl doesn't need a pen and pencil. She <laughs> needs you to spend half an hour with her or invite her round for mince pies and mulled wine. That's the goal. And and it's one of the last anti-capitalist refuges. Yeah. Um, so we I think rather than ditching the lot and throwing out the baby with the bathwater, we actually need to cling pretty hard to the good side of that, which isn't necessarily even about religion, though it doesn't hurt for people to be reminded that it's the story of, you know, an unwanted refugee family, since we're talking, you know, who is and isn't included, um, who are pushed out into the cold because they don't evidently uh, rank a proper hotel room. Yeah. Yeah. I, uh, I very much, uh, like William James's definition of religion, which is just a, a connection to something bigger. And although as he developed over his life, he became a, a rather conventional believer in his personal life, mm-hmm. his larger definition drawing, I think from his godfather Emerson of this almost transcendentalist connection. If that's, if that's mm-hmm. what religion is, it's obviously a good thing. Yeah. Um, the, the, the story of, connection and unwanted refugees you're absolutely right is you you can tell the story of jesus without having to descend into you know 1950s american commercial imperialism which has come to be what christmas means in the united states but Mm -hmm. i'm doing an episode like this to precisely to push back against that absolutely right and for what it's worth i don't think that either cromwell or for that matter, Charles II would have approved of that idea of Christmas either, um, (laughs) in that that idea of Christmas is also self-serving in the very negative sense. It's about boosting sales. Mm -hmm. It's about waitresses and sales girls, and I've been both those things, run off their feet um, by the irascible demands of customers that everything be perfect. It doesn't have to be that way. We can break free of that by deciding to. Yeah, and remembering Christmas as 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 a carnival seems yeah. to me to be one of one of the best ways to do it. Absolutely right, and and I mean a, a, another kind of really minor thing, but I love it is the extent to which families cherish particular Christmas ornaments. Mm. I mean, I still have some that my children made in kindergarten. Yeah. We put them on the tree every year, even though they never did look all that great. But <laughs> it's part of Christmas to include yeah. them. And that, too, carries an important kind of carnivalesque significance, that it's for everyone, not just the shiny people. Yeah, I do think now I realize something that I need to go back to because we didn't hit on it. We we do not have Twelfth Night in in, in the United States. Um, so, so do you can, just leave your Christmas decorations up endlessly? Because we <laughs> have to take our Christmas decorations down before sunset on Twelfth Night, or it's a curse. Oh, I don't know. I don't know what the rule is. I do know that in a sort of like a traditional American suburban imagination in which your yard has to be mown a certain way and everything, there are very stringent rules about when Christmas comes up and down, but there's nothing festive about it. It's just, it's just judgmental American mean spiritedness. So tell, tell us about Twelfth Night. Oh, Twelfth Night was the great night of carnival, as the Shakespeare play implies, full of cross-dressing, um, 
and and um, tricks played on annoying upstart stewards. Um, but it's it's also <laughs> the night when the Lord of Misrule takes over the household, gives everyone orders, everyone plays games. The games are sometimes sort of physical games like Blind Man's Buff, um, that they're bouncy and kind of naughty. Everyone drinks a lot, you eat a lot, but you also have to take the Christmas decorations down traditionally. Uh-huh. Um, because if if you don't get them down by sunset, there's a co- possible connection with the wild hunt, um, <laughs> which is a dubious, um, dubious, difficult to date folkloric belief that may actually date from Shakespeare's time rather than earlier periods. But it's definitely alive and kicking by the time Shakespeare writes Merry Wives of Windsor. And it's the idea that um, a figure called Hearn the Hunter, but it, there's different uh, local figures, so Francis Drake is one of them, rides through the sky leading a horde of dead people um, on Twelfth Night. Um, and they sound like geese. Um, so if you've ever heard geese go over, they sort of creak. Um, and uh, they will drive your animals mad. So you have to shut up everything that's wild to stop it from running mad. Again, this idea of sort of mischief and freedom and excitement um so that's the old kind of belief and and i think as i said part of christmas should be that sense of the household being a space of protection from the dark from the cold Mm -hmm. from the kind of supernatural entity you don't want to meet traditionally that's what the household is we could now kind of tell that story by saying it's a protection from loneliness or it's a protection Mm -hmm. from feeling yourself completely isolated in the world um, but it's still a story worth telling. Yeah. So Christmas, you know, it's it's easy for us to forget those of us living in our industrial civilizations that this time of year was associated with cold, dark, mm-hmm. hunger, and then the Christmas feast is a is a reminder that we are all in this together, and yeah. we have to take care of one another. And then the twelfth night is a reminder that our that our home is a place where we are protected safe and loved what could be more christmasy than that exactly right exactly so and therefore it's a celebration also of those values of our continuity as a household as a family as a society but in a good way in an inclusive way that invites other people in rather than shutting them out all right, that is wonderful. Um, Diane, we have covered everything I was hoping to cover. So all that's left to say, is there anything else you would like to share with the listeners? I guess the only thing I'd really like to share, because it cropped up tangentially, and I'd like to say a tiny bit more about it, is the extent to which Christmas is a pagan festival. Mm. Um, and certainly the timing, and, and everyone knows this, is is that of a pagan festival. And it's an interesting moment because it's not identical with the solstice. The solstice happens four whole days before Christmas. So it's the moment when the days are actually lengthening again, Mm. a moment, therefore, when we seem not to want to dispel the darkness. I mean, Hanukkah is much more about being a sort of looking towards the dark moment. Um, but where we want to celebrate the fact that the tide has turned mm-hmm. and turned in our favour, that, that it's a festival that's all about hope. Um, and the Saturnalia, on which it may or may not be based, and also there's a, um, a Roman festival called the, um, the Sol Invictus Festival, of the, mm-hmm. the, the Victory of the Sun, 
um, those festivals also involve significant amounts of misrule. So if Christmas is a Christianization to any extent of those festivals. And surprisingly, medieval Catholicism was much more hospitable to paganism than Puritans were. It's Puritans who thought the very fact that Christmas had pagan antecedents was a reason to discard it. Catholics were like, yeah, this is fine. Yeah, we can do this. Um, Interestingly, because the big division here, and this is so important for what we're saying, is that pagans are also happy with bodily stuff and with feasting Mm -hmm. and with disorder and with inversion and puritans aren't happy with anything of that well this is this is why i describe puritanism as the beginning of the enlightenment because it's about getting everything straight neat orderly inside and out and of course you know you will never get a conventional historian to accept that because they will see themselves as the embodiment of the enlightenment and they don't like the fact that they're puritans as well Oh my! Yes, I mean, oh, this is. I mean, you're 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 just in a territory now that I that I cannot abide that. I can mm. I can I cannot abide that that view of those historians. I just can't. I'm sorry. No, me neither. And it's ridiculous, actually, because all historians have views and prejudices before they become historians. But saying that doesn't mean that we have to cast aside the effort mm-hmm. to find out what the truth is. We, we can still find out a relative truth that's of more value than nonsense. Um, but but we also, it would be rubbish for us to insist that we can come up with a pure or purified historical truth that eliminates all other possibilities. Yeah, ab- absolutely. And I, listeners, long-time listeners heard me say this as well. This William James says this about science. Science itself comes from human drives, comes from beliefs, comes from our being in the world. It's not outside of it, and it cannot be purified of those things. You have to be, to paraphrase them, you have to be a little crazy to be a scientist. So to, you can't be totally rational to be a scientist, otherwise you would never go through all the absurd links it takes to be a scientist and 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 christmas at least this pagan element is reminding ourselves that we're all a little crazy and 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 disordered and we can celebrate that rather than tamp it down yeah absolutely right yeah a little anarchy is especially valuable yes yes precisely oh wonderful diane this was this was such a pleasure i guess i'll just say again anything else you'd like to add this is so delightful um, it's been great talking to you graham and i've really enjoyed our conversation i am just going to do a further single plug for my books my publisher would want me to do that and i am in the grip (laughs) of commercial forces here (laughs) aren't Um, we all (laughs) but but i'm also just going to say um i think people who are interested in what we've been discussing might find them helpful follow-ups one is called the english civil war a people's history and the sequel to that is called english food a people's history both published by william collins all right wonderful wonderful thank you so much diane such a pleasure it's been a great pleasure thank you and uh, i should say uh, Mer- merry christmas to you yes merry christmas and i like that word merry let's keep it yes very good <laughs>